In Presbyterianism, we believe in the parity of elders. I really saw it today. I really saw it. Because I need to be led as much as I lead others, right? I need to be led to the gospel. I need you, Abe. I need you. I need my wife. I need Sid. I need all of you to lead me to Jesus too, right? As I'm going to lead you. That's what I need to do for you. Uh, Peter designed worship today. and Did you notice that the... uh, the confession was, don't be anxious. And it, it hit me. I was sitting right there. And um, I've been very, very anxious. And I keep going to Jesus going, why aren't you giving me peace? And I think it was because I wasn't confessing anxiety as sin. I asked them to forgive me this morning. You know, it's funny, it's because this all happens in real time. Like, if I can't separate myself from my message, right? Or if I can, then I'm a phony. <laughs> I don't want to be that for you. I don't want to cheat you. <laughs> I want you to get the story of the gospel. But one of the challenges of preaching and teaching when you're beleaguered is, is obviously having, you know, the mental ability and fortitude or emotional stability or personal, you know, wherewithal to continue through and push through. And I've got grit. No, 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 that's the problem. I can't just do it under my own strength. You see, I don't think that will be sufficient. We need the Holy Spirit. But one of the, one of the things that happens in this kind of time is that uh, I have to rely on very easy sermons to, to prepare. So this is a really easy one. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. So let's take a look at this. And I'm going to hope, I'm going to, I want to invite you, all of you, into how this verse has guided me in, in my whole life. When I first became a pastor, I remember I was, I was young. I, I thought I was going to be a pastor since I was nine years old. When mom and dad moved from the drug culture and and the, and, the, uh, and the prostitution and the, and the drug running that they were around, when they turned to Jesus, um, it, was a, it, was, it was a radical shift in our lives. It was revolutionary. It's, it changed everything in our lives. And um, I gave my life at nine years old. I signed a card saying that I wanted to give my life to full-time Christian service. And uh, I remember because the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I remember I was so excited. I was so thrilled. And I, I couldn't, I knew I had purpose in my life. I didn't even know what, I didn't really understand it. And, uh, and then I, but then you get into life, right? <laughs> and life is hard. You know, you have hardness inside, and your own, your own doubts, your own, your own fears, your own weaknesses of character, your, all the things that plague you, and all the infirmities that are a part of your life. And, and, and then you, you, certainty, it, it's, you just begin to forget. Well, why am I, how do I have clarity? How do I know to keep going when I don't feel it, or when I, or when I feel alone, or when things are, how do I, and I remember my head swimming in the difficulty of it all. And, and uh, this verse, became something. I remember my first ministry was in the inner city and, and, and it was about five weeks after my ordination. Peggy was folding laundry next to our church building. Peggy was our first convert 
She was a mother of five. She was folding laundry. She lived right next to her to the church. And I remember she started to come, how overjoyed she was. And she fed me my first chitlins. And thankfully, my last chitlins. I just, nobody's ever offered them again. I'll eat them if they're put in front of me, but I don't like them. I found if you put a lot of hot sauce, you can eat anything. But I, she, uh, I was with my first elders. You know, it's funny when you go, to, you go to seminary, they don't prepare you for how to lead like a congregational meeting or an elder meeting. You don't know anything, you know. And I'm sitting in my, in, in my office in the inner city. And I heard the gunshots. <laughs> I never heard them because I, you hear them all the time. A few, a few minutes pass. And I'm trying to leave my first meeting and the phone starts to ring. In my office. And, and my elders are sitting there and the phone's ringing. And, I, and, and this is before cell phones. And, I, and I, I don't know how to turn it off. I was thinking about I don't answer it. It rings again. I don't answer it. It was a third time. What the heck? No, I'm not answering that because I'm doing the work of the kingdom right here. I'm a pastor. I'm leading my elders, right? Peggy had been shot in a drive-by shooting and taken a bullet to the head in front of her kids. And I... That was my... Five weeks into ministry, that was my trial by fire. How am I going to do this? You know, how am I going to do this? I remember being brought into that hospital room, and there's there's somebody on a bed dying with a gunshot wound, and all the kids, and there's the dad, and they're standing there, and then they want you to pray. And I remember like, what? What am I supposed? To, like it just made me feel powerless and weak and foolish and stupid and pointless and irrelevant and everything. And I remember the darkness in my heart thinking, what point does anything mean? And then there would be the Mary coming at two o'clock in the morning, you know, cracked out and spaced out, tricking her body for the next hit. What do I do with that? What do I do with the, the, the young man who's now leading an entire gang of men just to protect himself? In a, in a world that was going to kill him if he, didn't have, if he wasn't armed at all times. And then I came to this and I put it on my letterhead and I put it on every correspondence I had because I, I took hold of this verse, 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. For I resolved when I was among you, said Paul, for I resolved, I decided, I judged, I made a critical judgment, is this word. When I was among you, the Corinthians, Corinth, the ancient, ancient great city of pleasure and power and privilege and money and sex in the ancient world. Sound familiar? Anyway, uh, we could put San Francisco instead of Corinth right there. Easy enough. I resolved when I was among you, these Corinth, to know nothing. And he says this with such declarative power. It's the second chapter, by the way, except Christ and him crucified. Second chapter. He's going to go, he's going to go for up to 15. He's, going to, he's got a lot more to say. Even. But he says this. I resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And I saw something there. I saw something to hold on. Because you see, when I'm faced with addiction, I can't solve that. When I'm faced with the divorce problems and marriage, marriage difficulties and estranged children and crack prostitutes and death, what am I, you know, I, I can't. Oh, 
found a place to live in this verse. Because I, I, even if I couldn't understand everything else, I could understand this. <laughs> and this set me free in ministry. And in fact, in many ways, I think became everything for my life. So what do I need to do today? And what is my goal? My goal in my preaching has always been, and I always preach on the Gospels on Sunday morning, or at least that's our core text we, we always go from. And that's where I always want to preach from, is because I want to get Jesus bigger. Bigger in your intellect. Bigger in your imagination. Bigger in your worship. Bigger in your emotional life. Bigger in the contours of your life. Larger than your problems. Larger than... I want to encourage you, no, compel you, no, like, if I could paint the picture of Jesus, if I could somehow place him before you, Christ, I mean, Paul even says, I, when I was among you, displayed Jesus, so you could see what kind of God, who this is and what he has done, and that if we're going to double down, if we're going to trust anything for this generation, for this time, for this, and I say generation, I'm not talking about millennials. I'm talking about the sum total of all of the ideas and thoughts of this time. The answer to the complexities of the age are what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Am I being oversimplistic? Am I being reductionistic? Am I naive? Am I foolish? Am I to be pitied for an oversimplification of what's going on in the Sudan? No, I say no. I resolved when I was among you to know nothing except Christ and crucified. So my goal is to enlarge the Son of God in your mind, imagination, in emotion, and intellect, and will, so that having looked upon him and gazed on him, you now want him and you will do anything to have him. <laughs> and that's and I found in this a secret to unwrapping a lot of my life. We need to get Jesus bigger. Why? Because this, 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 this claim that he makes here, and this boldness he makes, I want you to first see it as, as a revolutionary as it truly is. Um, I, do you ever see the book, Everything You Know is Wrong? It's a, big, it's a big book. It's actually kind of fun. And it's, it's, it's one of these, uh, it's, it's, it's really coming from the left. And, and, and it's a desire to unmask conspiracies. You know, and like, like tell you the real truth behind uh, the things you don't know. And, uh, and claiming that, you know, everything you know, everything you've been told is, is wrong. And I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. I, there is a reason I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. Because um, I have found it's hard to take like two men who agree with everything you think. It's hard to get, to get planning with them to accomplish a goal. How does anybody think conspiracies work? I still get it. I don't need it. I don't need it. Everything you know is wrong. All right, what am I saying? What am I saying? I want to get foundational here. Science will tell you, and the law of thermodynamics cannot be, cannot be changed, and that is everything is moving from a state of order to disorder, and it's in decay. And what happens when Christ rises from the dead? Everything you know is wrong. 
everything you've been told about what's possible is wrong. The idea that Christianity was born out of men's imaginations, that's wrong. The idea that we've created religion to somehow pacify our fear in the night of the unknown and the abyss that's happening and how death is coming, it's not true. This is, point of fact, false. There is, or how about this, the idea that chance or, or, or happenstance or evolution has simply, I am the foment and I am the, the foam of time endlessly cycling and throwing me against the cosmos. That's a lie. That's a lie. Everything you know is wrong. Oh, wait, I can do what I want with my body. Everything you know, you're being told is wrong. There's many, many ways to go. You know, everything you've been told. And, 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 and that's what these kinds of statements are for. They're a way for you to cut through that. You know, another way to, to, to get back to just how amazing our claims are. We have to get back to realizing that we, and, and the reason I'm including this so urgently is not just to get you all excited about it, because many of you are on the same page as I am, but also to help you to remember just how different your view of the world is from your neighbor. <laughs> like, we, we believe in the resurrection from the dead. Do you realize, we're, we're not having the same conversations as the people around us. They, and, and that, the reason I tell you this is I want you to see how far away from this idea, this, gen, this generation, this time, this city really is. And the reason that's so important is, is it drives us back to Christ. It drives us back to claiming his power. It drives us back to basics. It drives us back to being the Holy Spirit. It drives us back to simplicity. It has to because everybody around you is wrong and it's hard and they don't know it. Peter, what does it feel like when you're wrong? What does it feel like when you're wrong? It feels like a punch in the gut. You hear that? He said it feels like a punch in the gut. He didn't answer my question. He answered a different question. He answered the question, what does it feel like when you find out you're wrong? That's what he answered. Didn't you all do the same thing? What does it feel like while you're wrong? You feel like you're right. Do you see that? Self-deception is profound. We must have a clear declaration of the gospel of the risen Christ and the Son of God has come with power. Truth is in the world. And we must, we have with more clarity and with more urgency, put the truth before men and women because they don't even know what makes them stumble. Does that mean? That's what that means. They don't even, and I, I urge you, and to have pity and mercy and compassion and prayer for this generation because we need the revolution of this concept. Second, we need a new presupposition. Jesus loves me. This I know. You know, I, uh, I remember uh, standing at the coffee shop at college and, and uh, somebody had made all these arguments about, about how God wasn't real and, and uh, the problem of evil or something. And I remember... Do you ever have this happen where you just don't have an answer? You just kind of like, I don't know how to answer that. Like, I, and you get kind of scared, like, or you, you get, and there's this wonderful call, I think, that Jesus gives us to, to just settle down, go back to what you, your pre-supposition, what's your assumptions? What's your starting point 
for how you think and what you think and what you imagine. Where do you begin? Let me suggest you begin here <laughs> with this idea. This, and rest in it as the one thing that is said about who you are and what you are in his person, in his work, and how you are firmly established. And I, we don't have to be clever. We don't have to be wise. We don't have to figure it out. We don't have to have a good plan. I love this. We don't have, Jesus loves me. I know that much. And if you know that much when you start your day, I think you can make it through. It's a reduction, right? It's getting back to essentials. It's believing again that his death and his life was my substitute. It's looking at the cross and realizing it's a, it's a, it's a God-man. It's the most powerful creature who's ever walked the earth, dying in my stead, dying with blood that can save, dying so that a death can make, have meaning because as the God-man, he would rise from death and take us in his train, yank us out of death and thermodynamics, yank us out of this universe with his love. <sighs> yank us out away from death because he loves Praise him. He loves. Turn to him. He loves. Trust him. He loves. Trust him again. He loves. In the dark. Trust him again. He loves. And, and keep going back to the what is the assumption of the day. This is what I do when I'm in the dark, in my fear. And finally, just perception, the fog of life. Have you ever heard of the fog of war? Have you heard of the fog of war? Soldiers describe it. This is what it's like. Bombs are going off. Your hearing is usually impaired by all the sound. You don't, so now you can't really hear, not clearly. Maybe you hear a whistling in your ear from all the sounds of battle. Then there's smoke and exploding lights. Maybe it's dark even. Now there's smoke drifting across the battlefield with loud noises. And all of a sudden, you don't know if the enemy's in front of you, behind you, or your left or your right. And what happens in the fog of war? People start shooting at each other, like this is where friendly fire comes in. Because of the confusion, the fear, the doubt, the uncertainty. And all of a sudden, men are just racing, and racing in circles. And it happens again and again. It's well documented in war. This is what happens on the battlefield. Confusion. It's what happens in life, too. <laughs> it's what happens when your mom dies. It's what happens when you don't know what's going on with your kids. It's what happens when your job is a threat. It's happened when, when the fog descends and you're not quite sure what the next step is or what the next answer or the next plan. And I know that fear. I know it just claws into your soul. I, you can barely breathe. You ever felt that? Like You just feel like you can, the panic sets in, the claustrophobia of life, the fear. And what are we called to? It's like a place of calm in the universe. I am the Lord, says Jesus. I am God, and I died for sinners like you. Trust me. Because, um, you know, he's not a God of confusion. He's a God of love and kindness and gentleness and clarity and truth. And I, I'm running to that truth today. I'm running into it. I'm running to it. I'm holding on to it for dear life. I'm white knuckling it, guys. Because <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what tomorrow begins, brings. And I, 
And, I, and, and when you get really anxious in these situations, you can't even get the clarity to think clearly inside your head, right? What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And the fog of life descends. You turn again to your presuppositions and the revolutionary claim that God loves us and that he has done every, he has done all things to bring us to himself. I, I, that's, that's the story today. That's what I'm holding on to and holding on with. That's what I'm holding on for. <laughs> In every sense I can hold, I'm holding this. So um, there's an invitation today and a renewal. And you, you know, uh, you ever notice that once in a while you need to reboot your computer? You ever notice that? Kind of a reboot, a reset. Because programs add on, they continue, programs continue to run, and sometimes there are programs and they're, they're dynamically linked libraries, or everything, everything just kind of clicks in. But things get fuzzy after a while when programs are running and running and running. And if you just turn it off and restart it, what happens? A lot of times it boots up and it's a, it runs much better. I think that's how I use this verse. I use it as a reset button. Does that make sense? Like I use it as a reset, a reclaiming, a restanding, a recommitting, a realigning, a reconnecting, and reestablishing and renewing. You know, isn't it funny that RE prefix, that RE prefix is even here in resurrect, it's all over the place. It's, it, it, it's just, God loves that little, that little prefix because he's all about re, <laughs> renewing, reviving, rebirth, <laughs> re, and not regarding, re, I said renewing. And that's where I'm turning today. And that is where my hope is. Let's pray. My Father and my God, I, I don't know if I made Jesus big enough today. And I can't, I am just stunned by your love. And as we kind of work through this hard time, and as I lead and as I serve my people and serve your name, I pray for grace and your mercy, pray grace in your presence. Clarity like this of presupposition, just that kind of clarity that can only come from you and by the Holy Spirit. I thank you for leading me to repent. Lead us all to repent. There's that RE again. <laughs> it's everywhere. You're just doing it all over again. You're renewing everything. And I praise you for it. Guard our hearts. Be tender to us. Show us Jesus, dear Father, so we can trust in him. Let the Holy Spirit flow in this place. We pray this for Jesus, for his glory and his name. Amen. I think it might be the shortest sermon I've ever preached. All right, so, all right, let's, on Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. I love crushing it. You know why? Because I feel like I'm crushed right now. And he was crushed for my sake. Amen. I love that. He was, this is his body, he said, for us. In the same way, he also took a cup of wine. We have wine on the right here, and we have grape juice on the left for those who prefer it. 
But he took a cup of wine and said, this is my blood, the cup of the covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. In this meal and in this ritual which he established, Jesus sought to teach us how, we be, how he becomes our substitute. And by faith in him, which you enact by taking the bread and wine, faith, as your exercise of faith, you are saying, my trust is in him. And you're claiming this verse as your truth and the truth you believe and the truth you know to be true. So, if you're a sinner, Sid, this is your table. If you are broken and turning to Jesus, this is your table. But let me say the opposite. If you think you're a good good woman or a good man, if you think you're a good person, then you are unworthy of this table. Jesus came to die for sinners. And this truth, revolutionary presupposition that changes all perception, this truth is a gift to the least and the ruined and the sinner. It's not a gift to the good people, for they do not need a savior. Finally, if you're a skeptic and you find my claims hard to stomach or hard to believe, And perhaps as a skeptic, you can see if you actually did believe this, that it would change everything. But as a skeptic, I hope that you watch and will someday share in the joy and belief and confidence that I have in Christ. All right, so let's come. We're going to do a little ritual here. We're going to come forward, grab the bread and the wine, go back to our seats, and we'll all take it together. And we'll all exercise faith together. I'll exercise this confidence right here that we know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And after we sing a song, we will, uh, we will take together. All right, so that's, that makes sense, right? Okay, let's, uh, let's stand, please. Christian, brother and sister, yes, who are here from out of town, tell me, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Huh?